Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today is Ask Harry Anything, and I must say, you guys outdid yourselves. This, there's some great questions here. Part, uh, I'm judging great partly in a subjective way as ones that I will enjoy answering, but there's some uh, contentful, non-perfunctory message uh, questions here. Let's start with one of the most difficult. In regards to metaphysics, I understand objectivism makes a distinction between eternity and the infinite. And that, all right, let me pause on that. Eternity means out of time. It means not in time. So, for example, uh, the universe, which is what we're talking about, has always existed and will always exist. Time is not, sorry, the universe is not in time, just as it's not in space. Space and time are relationships among things in the universe. So it is not that the universe, quote, will go on for an infinite amount of time or has gone on for an infinite amount of time. There is no such measure. That's like saying the infinite, uh, sorry, the universe is really sticky. What would that mean? There's no meaning to that. And there's no meaning to how long has the universe existed? Or when will the universe do this or do that? There's no meaning to that. So the questioner says they understand that there's the distinction between saying that it's not in time and that it is infinitely there's an infinite amount of time, and the time is a measurement of motion. Well, that, that is not 100% accurate, but it's a good first attempt from Aristotle or from the usual interpretation of what Aristotle says. Time is a measurement. Time has to do with the relationship among motions. But I, all this is preparatory to the difficult question. But I just cannot wrap my head around how in an everlasting universe, we have gotten to the point we have now. In other words, the classic problem of traversing the infinite, in quotes, or eternity. We cannot apply time to the universe as a whole, but within the universe, cause and effect motion that is cause and effect parenthesis motion would have been happening for eternity no how is it that we reach this moment now and not before or after or even reached it at all and let's try that with space i understand we cannot apply space to the universe as a whole but within the universe there are places and how is it that the universe is in the place that it's in now and not some other place it's not in place the universe did not reach this moment 
you can talk about things, something in the universe like me or the Earth or our galaxy reaching the current moment from some earlier moment, but you cannot imagine that there's some celestial clock that has run in, uh, run for an infinite number of revolutions around. And how is it that we're here rather than there? That the whole question is a misinterpretation. I think this can be clarified by my own theory of time, which is not um, part of objectivism. It's my own. I think it's consistent with what Ayn Rand said about time, but uh, take this and see if this works. We, if you ask what facts of reality give rise to the idea of a time, like it is now Monday, 4.06 p.m. in the Eastern time zone on Earth, what facts of reality give rise to that? It's not just that one motion can be related to another. So I could say this class is after I woke up. I woke up this morning and this class is later. It's not just that. It's the fact that there's a whole bunch of motions that I want to relate this to that are all systematically connected to each other. So the current time is the time when the clouds I'm looking at in the sky are in the positions that they're in. When Venus is in the position it's in, when the sun is in the position it's in, when the um, water in my swimming pool out there to my right, probably your left, is waving to the extent that it is and each wavelet is where it is. So. There's a whole ensemble of changes going on. And you talk about a time when you want to relate to the whole ensemble of changes. So you can go from, well, 4.06 is the same time that Joe left his apartment. Joe being someone who lives a mile away from here. So it's a relationship among a set, a class uh, of interacting entities that are doing things. That's the facts that give rise to it. You want to connect it to the network of times, but everything cannot be placed on one time scale. Things that are too far away are not simultaneous with things that are going on now. This is Einstein's point, actually, but it's right. Ayn Rand said time is local, meaning maybe to our galaxy, but it is not something that applies across the whole universe. She said this to me in private conversation. And it was definitely the time that does not apply across enough distance. So um, if you think of time as relating uh, 
what's going on now with some events to the ensemble of events that are interacting and close enough together so that the, if you know about the light cone that Einstein talked about, the things can affect each other and can interact within the scale of time that you're talking about. That is what happens and it doesn't give rise to the question. I'll give you another way that Alan Gotthelf used to use. Alan was a good friend of mine, a year older at Columbia University, a year further ahead in graduate studies. And uh, he's an objectivist and a great philosopher, died about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, Alan used to answer this question by saying, however in thought you however far in thought you go back in time you could go back further but it's not that that time is there and the question is well how do we get from there to here you are thinking back and however far back you go you thought back a finite amount just as you could project ahead what will happen next year? What will happen a million years now? What will happen a billion years from now? But you can't say what will happen in an infinite number of years. There's infinite and number are contradictory to each other. Infinite means continuing, number means we stopped and it's this many. So if you think of it in Alan's way, the question also doesn't arise because it's the, the past that you're thinking about is finitely removed from you. And the fact that you can think about something even further back doesn't give it a metaphysical existence. It's a potential to go further back in thought. Uh, another question is, how would you relate altruism, selflessness, and second-handedness? Well, there are really only two things to relate there because selflessness is virtually a synonym for altruism. It's not quite because altruism is the theory, the morality, the moral code that demands selflessness. So if you are being selfless or someone is being selfless, he is living by the altruist ultimate value. He's, he's um, achieving insofar as you can achieve a zero, which is not that far, by the way. This is kind of the inverse of the infinity. Now we're at the zero. Because to be selfless, you would have to die. Total selflessness. But if you perform a particular act of self-sacrifice, selflessness, you don't regard yourself at all, you're doing what altruism recommends. So the question, there is just theory and practice. Altruism says go be selfless, and selflessness is doing it. So there's nothing really to relate there. But the interesting one is how would you relate altruism and selflessness and second-handedness? Second-handedness is the uh, identification that Ayn Rand made that some people live second-hand. They live through others. They substitute others' judgment values, ideas, attitudes for forming their own. 
So it's not independent agreement with others on something. It's conformity. It's non-thinking. It's selfless. And the fountainhead makes the point that to be second-handed is to live and implement the morality of altruism and that what altruism demands is that you surrender your mind which is the ultimate second-handed betrayal altruism demands that you stop thinking for yourself because that's selfish the independent mind that refuses to sacrifice its opinions to others is not placing others above itself if you believe that others own you, which is what altruism preaches, you have no right to tell them what is true. You have to accept what the king says. And the king is anybody who's not you, according to altruism. So a big theme uh, of the fountainhead is precisely that Second-handedness is the psychology demanded by altruism, and altruism demands second-handedness. There's a particular speech by Gail Wynand, the tragic, flawed hero of, of the Fountainhead, on his yacht to Rourke, where he, has, he talks about how he's been selfless. He's been giving the mob what they want. And he scorned, but he said he is really the real saint of altruism. He has no personal input to his newspaper. He just prints what the mob wants him to print. And he describes it as a, being a saint of altruism. And that's right. What type of music do I enjoy? I'm so glad you asked. I have one of the most unusual mixtures of music that I like that you're going to come across. And it's very narrow within each field. The highlights, the early Elvis Presley the Elvis Presley of the Sun Sessions and maybe a year thereafter, the Elvis before Love Me Tender. Definitely before he went into the army. But going back, the earlier you go back, the more I'm with it. Rachmaninoff. I really identify with Rachmaninoff. My favorite piece is the Second Symphony not the second concerto, which everyone thinks of, but the second symphony as played by the Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy. Scott Joplin, the ragtime composer, uh, you know his music probably from The Sting, but he wrote, uh, I have all of his works, uh, in sheet music, and I try to learn him on the piano. He wrote, I think it's about 60 rags for piano, 
which are far more sensitive than the rags of Tin Pan Alley. I mean, they're not in the same universe. Blues, such as people such as Howlin' Wolf and um, who's the, the big, I, I always blank out on his name, but B.B. Uh, King, Albert King, and um, the bluesmen, the anonymous bluesmen that are, are so uh, prolific. There's so many of them. And Elvis comes out of that. Emmerich Kalman, big, big favorite, the operetta composer. He wrote Countess Maritza and Circus Princess and the Bayadere and the Duchess of Chicago and the a little Dutch girl. And he wrote about 20 operettas all of which has some wonderful melodies, but uh, if you want to put your foot into it and get interested and find out what it's all about, I would say the most accessible is Countess Maritza, or Maritza, as Americans pronounce it, Maritza, M-A-R-I-Z-I-T-A, is it Isaac? Maritza, M-A-R-I-Z-I-T-A. T-Z-A, M-A-R-I-T-Z-A, Maritza, Maritza. You may recognize, if you're certainly, if you're of a certain age, you may recognize one or two songs from it because they were popular. Uh, finally, I would say Richard Rogers and some musical comedy pieces. Burt Backrack. Bert Backrack is very talented. He's not as dear to me as the others, but I get him, and he's somebody I like. Uh, Chopin, some Brahms, some other, I won't call it classical, but serious romantic music list. I don't go past maybe a couple pieces of Prokofiev into the modern era. Rachmaninoff is the pinnacle for me. If you're interested in listening to Rachmaninoff, I would start with the second concerto. That's his most popular piece and it's wonderful. And it's a little easier to take in then the second symphony, which is my favorite. Now, here's an interesting question. I work for a leftist, cons uh, I should say, since this is based on, uh, I, this show is coming out of Ayn Rand's philosophy and the movement around it. Ayn Rand's favorite composer was Kalman. And her favorite, uh, Serious composer was Rachmaninoff, although she also loved Chopin, and she went back and forth in what she told me between Chopin and once she said Chopin, once she said Rachmaninoff. I work for a leftist consulting firm that has ethnic minority and sexual groups. I, I guess you mean hiring by them, you know, collectivist tribal approach to that. 
They also promote DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and climate divestment. And he puts scare quotes around these things. Am I doing something immoral working for them? Are they evil? For clarification, I am a programmer. You might be, but not necessarily. It depends upon parts of the context that I don't know. So I couldn't say from afar, I would say there are extremes that I would say from afar. If, if you worked for uh, the SEC, that's the for the Brits and foreigners, you're foreigners, you know, if you're not an American, at least to me. That said with a smile. Uh, if you're not an American, the SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission, and it's one of the most controlling and abusive. Or uh, if you work for the um, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, or any of these really bad agencies, the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, that I would say is immoral. But Working for somebody who supports certain ideas could be okay, but distasteful, or it could be actually aiding and abetting the spread of ideas you oppose. I can't tell. I can't tell how many other jobs there are available for you, uh, how much of it is a temporary necessity, but I, you wouldn't want to stay in a job like that. I mean, it must be very angering and a bad atmosphere for you. So I can't tell. It could, which is not to say, oh, sure, go ahead. It's to say you have to judge that. And in some cases, it is wrong. And when I say you have to judge it, I don't mean, well, it's up to your feelings. I mean, there are a lot of facts here uh, that govern how the principles of what is a sanction, what is not, apply. Suppose you work at Starbucks and Howard Schultz is a leftist. That's not wrong. You're not in People wouldn't say, well, he must be thinking these ideas are correct because he works for Starbucks. Howard Schultz gave a good testimony, by the way, before Congress, even though they were attacking him on leftist grounds. Does altruism primarily weaponize envy or guilt? Well, this is not one of the best questions, but let's try and dig in and analyze it. To weaponize means to take something and make a weapon out of it. So. It does not weaponize envy. It does not take envy and say, hey, people, you should be envious. You're not being envious enough. But guilt, it does weaponize. So the answer to that is it weaponizes guilt as a mask to cover envy. And Ayn Rand wrote The Age of Envy to explain that the term envy is too weak a term for what's going on here. It's hatred of the good for being the good. Hatred of what you regard, not you in my audience, but what they regard as the good by their standards. They hate it because it 
shows up the emptiness of their own souls and the their own immorality, which they recognize or sense in some way. So it you it's it makes you feel guilty. And I really had no idea of the extent that it did that or tried to do that until I heard from some really uh, some people who've been brought up in really religious households where they do try to make you feel guilty of every mouthful of food you eat because it could have been given to somebody poorer than you. But this is a real thing. The, it's not just the Jewish mother who does weaponize guilt. The Christian the religious training is very much on the idea of you are a sinner, you are guilty. Nuns who are the ones who take Christianity as serious, you you couldn't find anyone who takes it more seriously than they, are trained with the goal of wiping out their selves. They attempt in in the training to, uh, to banish all thought of self. And even Mother Teresa felt terribly, terribly guilty in her, diaries that comes across. The question is, I don't says, I don't think we'll ever have a third party option. I don't either. This is more a comment than a question. I suspect the political culture will change gradually as objectivists take over the Republican Party over the next 100 years. I am not convinced it'd be the it might be the Republican Party. But the way the Republican Party has gone since Trump, it's much more likely to be the Democratic Party. But in a way, it's not, uh, there's a little bit of a wrong model here. I found it very interesting when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980 to see what happened. I did not vote for him. Ayn Rand loathed him. She referred to him in passing to me as that ham B-movie actor. She particularly despised his position on abortion. He was anti-abortion. But when he was elected, he was elected by the people who thought he would take them to freedom. He was known for get the government off our backs uh, that the most frightening words in the language are, I'm here from the government and I'm going to help you. He was elected thinking he would bring back freedom and he didn't, but in some little ways he did. But the, he was elected in a landslide and I observed the, res, the results. Suddenly, everyone in Congress had moved three steps to the right, if you call the right what Reagan was selling, you know, the, what seemed to be freedom. So people who had been socialist leaning were now centrist. People who were centrist were now weak conservatives, and conservatives now were supply siders. So there was an immediate, I mean, this happened the next day. 
We saw the same thing in a bad direction with Trump. Once Trump got elected, the entire media, you know, Fox and the politicians, they all on the right, at least all started kowtowing to Trump, changing their positions. Uh, when Reagan got elected, even the Democrats moved right. So I think it's possible that the labels won't matter if the public becomes more and more convinced that capitalism is the moral system. You don't need even a change of personnel. Everything will follow in suit just the way it does now going in the other direction. So I, I don't think there needs to be a third party option. I don't think there needs to be one party or the other party. There needs to be a change in public opinion. And for that, the opinion leaders need to change their minds. Uh, another observation, the viciousness of the COVID lockdowns came primarily from Democrat governors and mayors. Yes, to my knowledge, that is true. And the viciousness of the abortion lockdown came primarily from Republican politicians. This is bad on both sides. We don't have to choose. It's wrong to choose. What would my response be to the argument man evolved as other animals because and because of this man is not a blank slate and has in inherent tendencies for the sake of survival and especially reproduction? I would say the premise is true and the conclusion is a misapplication of evolution. I mean, evolution moves the other way. Natural selection is for getting, once you've, to the extent that consciousness becomes more and more potent, behavior becomes less and less pre-programmed. I was taught this in the 60s as a student in physiological psychology at MIT. The whole mantra over and over again is quite correct. It's as the phylogenetic scale is climbed, behavior becomes more flexible. Now, they didn't talk a lot about consciousness in the 60s because of the influence of behaviorism. But if you're going to have the faculty of reason, which is what is man's biological advantage, you can't have inbuilt tendencies and programming. What, what is that going to say? How is the inherent tendency going to be selected in terms of whether you should invest in uh, Microsoft or Facebook or General Motors. That's what survival requires, money. Now we can go back to the you know, primitive man uh, in, in coming out of the cave. The man who thinks and invents the bow and arrow is not the man who's got some kind of innate idea of bow and arrow that selection then favors being spread in the population. 
The man who tames fire is the one who does not have an instinctive fear of fire. The man who tames the wolf and picks up the wolf cubs and domesticates them and creates dogs, which are a great help to primitive man's survival, is the one who's not governed by instinctive fear of the animals that prey upon him. So reason to function successfully has to be able to not be the slave of the passions, to use David Hume's phrase. So it is precisely natural selection that wipes the slate clean. The rational faculty to serve optimally in the service of survival cannot be chained down to idea fixe. So um, yes, uh, Gail Parker, I said I wasn't going to use names, but I just did, says Rachmaninoff is wonderful. I've, I heard Yuja Wong plays music. Yes, I have. And it's terrific. So we are over. There is uh, at least one more question that I didn't get to, which we'll push into the next session of Ask Harry Anything. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next Monday on HBTV.